0: All right, good morning. Am I good? Can you hear me? Okay, good. All right, glad to see you all out here this morning. I'm glad to be back. I've been out this past week on a work trip, and I'm about to go back again. But one of these days, I'll actually be in the neighborhood for a few minutes. All right, uh, we're going to continue our lesson series this morning. If you've got a book, we're going to be in page 121, lesson 20. The title of our lesson is, "Is Christ Divided? We're going to be uh, sitting in 1 Corinthians this morning, so if you want to go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, we'll primarily be looking at verses 10 through 15. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 15. But before we get into that, I want to share a couple of stories with you to kind of get our minds going this morning. Go back several years, several decades, long before my time uh, in Vietnam. The U.S. Was, was in Vietnam. The Air Force was running uh, flights into Vietnam as part of the war. But there were a few issues. Uh, Air Force fighters coming in from Thailand reported to two different chains of command. If the fighters were in the air, they answered to the 7th Air Force out of Saigon, and if the fighters were on the ground, they answered to the 13th Air Force in the Philippines. If that's not confusing enough, uh, the commander, there, there was one commander for both 7th and 13th Air Force, and he was a deputy to both commanders of both of those units. Flights coming in out of Laos were subject to the ambassador, not the military, because the ambassador had to approve all flights. The 7th Air Force out of Saigon had two bosses. Uh, There was the uh, Military Assistant Command Vietnam in the South Vietnam region, and in North Vietnam was uh, Pacific Command, except for the southernmost point of North Vietnam, which was subject to the Military Assistant Command Vietnam for South Vietnam. To add to that, the Navy had their own fighters, though subject to the Navy Command. The Marines had their own fighters, subject to the Marine Command. Then you had the B-52 bombers, which were subject to the Strategic Air Command, and you also had the CIA running around doing their own thing. Imagine trying to organize air support for your soldiers on the ground and not knowing who to talk to. And if you ask a particular person, who do I need to talk to, then they can't tell you. Because not only do they have multiple commanders and multiple groups vying for Attention and, and influence and power because that 's really what this boils down to, not even that, but that their chain of command depended on whether they were in the ground or on the, uh, on the ground or in the air it's a little confusing, right? Fast forward several decades to earlier this year, uh, the Russian Federation decides they're going to invade their neighbor, and as we 've seen, it did not go according to plan. One of the articles that I read from. March, suggested, based on on what we could tell, that there was no theater commander in Russia over the Ukraine invasion. It appeared as though there were soldiers coming from various districts across Russia who all had their own chains of command. They were acting independently, they were competing for resources, and they were not communicating with each other. And you kind of see what has happened because of all that dysfunction. They did not achieve their objectives. They had to pull back. And now there's fighting going on in the eastern part of the country, but all the, all the ground gains they made early on in the conflict were rolled back because of their dysfunction. Both of these issues share in common a concept that the U.S. military calls unity of command. And the idea behind unity of command is that at some point, somebody has to be in charge, right? There has to be someone that everyone answers to that is providing direction and deconflicting things and making sure that everything's going smoothly. And without unity of command, you get chaos. You get disorder, you get confusion, inefficiencies, and you get conflict, right? Because, Otherwise, the unit's subordinate are competing with each other because they don't know what else to do. And they don't know if they're gonna get their resources. They don't know if the logistics are going to work out. So if my unit needs fuel, and I don't know that anyone above me is going to be sending it, I'm gonna be taking it from the other guy, right? And if I need backup in a certain area, well, I'm going to be calling for it as the, as the ground-level commander because I don't know if it's coming elsewhere, if I don't take care of it. And so you see how the breakdown of the unity of command in a military leads to failure. All right. Now let's get to 1 Corinthians. So I'm going to go ahead and read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 15. Now I exhort you, brethren, By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. All right. So let's talk a little context first. Who's speaking here, or who's writing? Paul. Paul, okay. And who's he talking to? Yeah, the Church of Corinth, the Corinthians, right? That's why the epistle is called 1 Corinthians. Um in, in what form is Paul's communication taking place? How's he speaking to the Corinthians? Speaking to a lot of Right, so so Paul's not in Corinth at this time, right? Uh, it's possible he's in Ephesus. Um and he gets a letter from someone saying, hey, we've got issues, right? There are problems with this church that you've planted. After you moved on, they're having problems. So he writes a letter back. So he's writing this letter to the Corinthian church for them to read and learn from. So Paul's asking these questions to them, uh, several questions. He says, uh, has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? When he asks these questions, Um, Is he expecting an answer from the Corinthian church as to yes or no? No, No, this is a rhetorical question, right? A rhetorical question is a question posed not to provide an answer. He's not looking for information because Paul already knows the answer to the question. He's posing the question to get them to think, right? He's posing the question for them to stop and reflect on these issues that he's identified that they're experiencing. All right, so now where are we talking? We're in Corinth. What do we know about Corinth?
1: Seaport <coughs> city, everything came into
0: the seaport. Yeah, so it was, uh, it was uh, strategically located, right? Um, southern portion of Greece, I believe. There's this really narrow strip of land um, that kind of, I tried to get a map, but I couldn't find a good one. There's a large, large land mass on the coast, and then it goes up, and then it goes into the larger land mass in Europe. Uh, and Corinth is kind of near that little land connection there. Uh, What that means is, there's a whole lot of money coming through, right? It's a wealthy port city. There's a whole lot of shipping coming through, there's a whole lot of trade, there's a whole lot of money, and there's a whole lot of cultures because there's a whole lot of travel. A lot of people are coming through, um, transiting from maybe southern Greece up into Europe, or, or from the north down, or people coming in from across the sea to trade. And what that also means is um, there's a lot of belief systems. There's a lot of pagan gods. There's a lot of uh, worship of of Greek or Roman deities. And so that's kind of the environment that this church was uh, planted in, right? That's the kind of the ground around which this church was trying to grow. And we understand from the Corinthian letters that they had a lot of issues. They had a lot of internal issues. Um, they had issues with sin, they had issues with divisions, uh, conflicts, um, there were doctrinal questions that they uh, were struggling with, and so that's all the backdrop against which Paul is, is writing here. And maybe one thing to kind of put in the back of your mind as we're talking about this this particular issue of division, think about their religious background, from which most of these Christians are coming from. They're coming from a religious background which had a pantheon of gods, right? And so you can kind of pick whichever god you want to follow. If I want to uh, worship Aphrodite, then I'll go to the temple of Aphrodite. If I want to worship Zeus, I'll go to the temple of Zeus. Keep that in the back of your mind as we're talking about this problem of divisions in the church. So then what's the problem? What's the problem that Paul has identified? Right? I'm sorry, brother, what did you say? Yeah. Yeah, so they have these teachers, these men, that they have apparently begun to align themselves with. Right? Um, Now, on the face of it, again, think about, you're a new Christian. Paul comes in, and he plants this church, and he's a really good teacher, and then he moves on. Um, Perhaps, you know, Apollos comes in, or, or Peter comes in, and they're they're powerful teachers, and they're sharing the Word of God. You can see how someone coming from this religious background or someone who uh, doesn't really know a whole lot, they're still young in the faith, can become attached to the teacher that perhaps baptized them. Right? You can see how that would come along. Now what's, what's the problem with that? I think about You know, I I respect Houston, why don't I become a Houstonite, right? I'll follow his school of teaching because I like the way he teaches. What's the issue there? Yeah, so the problem with that is that if I become loyal to a man, what happens when that man perhaps teaches something contrary to to Christ, or perhaps that man goes astray in some way in his life, and he's no longer faithful like he was.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Yeah. You see, you see today a lot of different ways, and, and I'll, I'll we're gonna try to circle back to that too, and talk about kind of the different different um implications of this that we see in our world yeah that's kind of one of the extreme ends of it right is is following someone who not not only perhaps has left the faith but someone who perhaps does not have you know his his entire faculties either right um, and that has consequences for people that follow them, right? So there's a lot of dangers. There's a lot of issues when you're trying to be loyal to men rather than loyal to Christ. And it's, it's really interesting. When you look at verse 12, there are people that are saying, I am of Christ, right? There's some people that get it, and they're trying to stick with what Christ teaches and what they had learned about Christ from these other teachers, but you have other people in the congregation who have heard that and still say, no, I'm following Peter or I'm following Paul. And so what, what has this led to? This loyalty to teachers has led to um, verse 11, that there are quarrels among you. There are divisions. There are arguments. Um, you're pulling in different directions. You've built factions for yourselves leading to division within the church. Uh, in, the, in the lesson book, uh, Mr. Brownlow here mentions uh, in the first, first paragraph on page 121, um, three of the four groups manifested a sectarian denominational spirit, even though this was years before denominationalism with its many bodies, faiths, and creeds gradually developed, sectarian, and something I want to spend a second on, just kind of define to make sure we're all on the same page. You might have heard um, on, on the news or something, someone mentioned sectarian violence or sectarian conflict. And, and sectarianism is, is really just what we're talking about here. It's devotion to a particular group or subgroup. Usually an excessive devotion, you know, a very strong loyalty, um, which often results in conflict with other groups, right? The word sect is the kind of the root of this. So sectarian is is the idea of being divided into sects and divided into um, factions or subgroups. So how does Paul handle it? What does he say? Okay, you have to be unified in your beliefs. Yeah, so so not only be unified, right? Because they they could have been unified under Paul, or they could have been unified under Peter. But he's specific, right? Who who was the one that died for them? Who was the one that they were baptized into, right? We how,
1: so we, we see an example here of this based on these teachers, these men. Right.
0: Right: yeah, that's a fair point. Um, it's, it's not only teachers, right It's not only men. There are, there are various things from which you can become divided over or have a sectarian spirit over. It could be men, it could be doctrines, it could be uh, I don't know even I mean even drawing lines along national boundaries, you know you could you could divide the church up in so many different ways, um, and so this isn't I wouldn't say this is. A, a specific principle to only be applied in a certain case. I think this is a broader principle of, you know, we're trying not to divide the church up, right? And that unity is found not in men, but in Christ. And so when Paul is talking later in the, the reading, in uh, verse 13, when he asks these rhetorical questions, they know the answers to the questions, and he knows the answer to the questions. So he's not posing the questions for them to respond back. He's posing the questions to get them to step back and think about what they're doing. Who was crucified for them? Christ was, right? Who were they baptized into? Christ. And we're going to read here in a second, all these things were done through Christ, in Christ. Paul, Apollos, Peter just happened to be the people that helped them get through it, right? They were workers. They were there doing the will of Christ but they were not there to substitute Christ. They were not there to take his place um, or, or try to start their own movement. Um, so let's go ahead and, and actually do that. So, so the interesting thing about this section, I thought, one of the interesting things is that Paul mentions this issue but then he doesn't actually explain why it's an issue. He doesn't actually explain what is so bad about this, until you get to chapter 3. He kind of continues on his train of thought and then he comes back to this issue. And let's, uh, we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I'll read verses 1 through 4. And I brethren could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, For you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able. For you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? And so, as I said, well, let's see, let's go back. So... So what is Paul saying here? As he continues his train of thought, what is he saying? Yeah, you're not growing. When I was with you, you weren't able to learn all the things I wanted to teach you, right? I had to give you milk. You eventually needed to grow up to be able to handle meat. I think I might have jumped forward. Nope, okay, we're good. I was working on a slide with milk and meat last night and I decided against it. Um, I couldn't really make it work the way I wanted to. Um, and so what's holding you back from the meat, right, what's holding you in, still at the, the stage of, of milk is this sectarianism, this division. Um, the fact that, that you guys are so stuck on who baptized you or who taught you, and you can't understand that unity is found in Christ, not in men, what he's saying here is, I still can't teach you the things I want to teach you, because you're still stuck in that fleshly mindset. Yeah, and it, it really depends on their background, too, right? Because you had, you, you had Jews who were used to going through the priest, right? You had Gentiles who were also used to going through priests, different priests of different beliefs, but same general idea, right? There was someone between you, you know, um, and you can even see that today, right? What, what is the Pope but a man placed between you and God, right? Um, so that's, not, that's nothing new, Right? And it's something that endures today. Again, trying to place someone there, right, where Jesus is supposed to sit. So I don't
1: think their minds could even conceive. they can go straight
0: to the, mm-hmm. to the source. Right. Yeah, and that's what Paul's, Paul is trying to drive home is the one who you were baptized into, the one that died for you, that's the one that you're supposed to be aligned with, right? And, and we see this found throughout the New Testament, right? Uh, Matthew. 16 and verse 18. What does Jesus say? Upon this rock I will build, right? My church, right? My church. Not Peter's church, not Paul's church, but my church. Um, again, we see in John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus, leading up to that fateful you know, night, um, those fateful events. What is Jesus concerned about? What is he praying about in verses 20 and 21? Yeah, he's praying for unity, right? He says that um, I ask for those who would believe on, in me through their word that they all be one. And not only that they would be one, but that they would be one you know, in us, right? In Christ. Even as Christ and God are one for us to be one. And we see this taught throughout the New Testament as well. You turn over to Ephesians chapter 4, for example. We had verse 3 on the previous slide. Ephesians four verse four, Paul teaches what
1: there is one.
0: Right, but also before that, one body, body. one body, right? <laughs> no, you got it. Because it, it's this. It's similar to what Jesus is praying, right? There is one body, just as there is one Lord, right? Just as is there one, there is one faith, one spirit, right? That's that's Paul teaching what Jesus prayed. You know, the same idea that just as there is one, there should be, just as there is one Christ, there should be one body. We don't want to have divisions. We don't want to be breaking apart into factions. So this is kind of the point that Paul's trying to get across. He's trying to talk to these Corinthians who perhaps have these varying backgrounds of aligning themselves to various beliefs of the day, Um, They're. They're not, they're not grasping spiritual maturity yet. They are letting their fleshly desires to follow a man get in the way of their unity in following Christ. All right? So then let's look at ourselves. And, and I apologize a little bit for pushing away a couple comments, but I wanted to kind of lay out the observations from the book before we actually get into the applications. But now let's translate the principle to today. So what's the principle of, this, of the text? What have we talked about so far? Unity. And what type of unity? Hmm? Yeah, unity in Christ, right? Not in man. And that, that was a conversation I had yesterday when I was working on this. Is We're not, we're not just talking about like, unity in the broad sense. There's a specific context to this, right? Um, we're, we are rejecting the attempt at finding unity in men And we are pursuing unity in Christ. So if we continue reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We left off in verse 4. And Paul continues. And this is kind of where he hammers home what the issue actually is for the Corinthians to learn from. He says in verse 5, What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building." So then, when we look at Peter, we look at Paul, we look at Apollos, any spiritual teacher Ultimately, they are workers, right? They're not the object of our faith. They're not the object of our um, loyalty. They are just workers, just as we are just workers. Um, There's nothing special about Paul that would make me want to follow him over Christ. Because ultimately, Paul was doing his job, just as we would be doing our job. We belong to God, not to men. And when you see people try to divide themselves up and try to follow worldly leaders, you think about who these men are. You know, What do uh, John Calvin and John Wesley and the Pope and Alexander Campbell and all those people have in common? They're sinners, they're all men, right? None of them are perfect. And I don't want to be following any of them. I want to be following Christ. Because I know that Christ is the one who died for me. Christ is the one that I was baptized into. Christ is the one who's perfect. And Christ is the one whose teaching leads to eternal life. And if I try to put anyone between myself and Christ or myself and God, any man, I'm going to be disappointed. If not in this life, in the next. Because I'm not going to be able to find salvation in a man. And not only from a personal perspective. But sectarianism hurts the church. We've got a job to do. Go back to the unity of command example, right? The church has a job to do. And if the church is stuck in its in divisions, and if it's stuck in factions, then what does that do to the work of the church? It weakens it. It hampers it. It hinders it. Um, I'm not not treating the the context of of Mark 3 verses 24 and 25 precisely here, but I think the example Jesus uses applies in the same case. A house divided against itself cannot stand, right? The principle is the same. The the division ultimately weakens uh, an organization or a group of people or an effort or whatever it is. Division hinders uh, the work. So what I want to do for the next few minutes is kind of pose this, maybe, maybe have a little discussion, hopefully, applying this to today, right? And I'll go ahead, we've already kind of talked about, I think probably the, the more obvious application, and that's the one that, that our, our book talks about for the most part, is denominationalism, right? That if I am aligning myself under the teaching of a particular man who's gone off and made a religious group, or people have gone and made a religious group dedicated to him, even if he didn't want it to be that way. Um, I've divided the church, right? And I have veered away from simply following Christ to now following some man's interpretation of Scripture or some man's teaching or some man's vision for what the church should look like. And I think generally in this audience, um, that's not very controversial for me to say, right? Is that denominationalism is something that hampers the work of the church, that, it, that divisions uh, within um, the teaching of, of God is just as detrimental today as it was in the first century. And I think most of you here, not all of you, would agree with me on that. So let's go a step further, because keep in mind, what Paul is treating here is division within the church, right? And we see denominationalism today, which is more without. It's, it's outside these walls. And so I want to think a little bit more about what are some problems with unity in the church today in this room, right? What are issues that arise? There's several divisions in the church. Okay.
1: Mm -hmm. There's a lot towards Oklahoma and Ohio. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And I guess the mainstream, Church of Christ, it shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, I have close friends in that. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to bridge that. But gets, they're following narrow views and tradition.
0: Mm-hmm. And when you get away from the scripture, that happens. Yeah, so, so I guess to kind of summarize, in case anyone couldn't hear, you know, there's, there's issues today that trace back Decades, um, you, you kind of have what what I guess would be called the the non-institutional and I guess by implication the institutional. I've heard us called that before, um, and that's a challenging situation, right? And then you you have as you as you go further conservative, you have more more and more flavors of restrictions, like you've said the you have one cup, you have no preacher, um, house church only, you know some of those more conservative approaches that like are very exclusive, um, they would bristle at this, but legalistic is, is how it comes across. Um, I, I know a lot of people as well um, who, who uh, belong to those types of groups. So I would say that's probably a division on doctrinal grounds, right? Division on understanding scripture and, and how far interpretation of scripture goes. Right, because at that point, you now have division of people who are members of the body, who have gotten past you know, this conflict of, you know, of the plan of salvation, and yet now we're getting hung, hung up on organization, money, things like that. There was someone over here, too, that had a, a comment, I thought.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, so,
0: yeah, yeah, the, the orphanages and things, that's all similar. Yeah, similar uh, similar school of, of thought there. That other one is the edification. Edification church. Edification oh, church. So. Okay. They, Interesting.
1: That, they do not pay preachers. They do not have Bible class. Everyone stays in the auditorium. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the Bible class is a denominational concept.
0: Right. Well not not right as if I'm agreeing with you, but like right as an yeah, understanding I understand what, what you're that's saying. That's what they believe. Right, right. And uh they don't mm-hmm. think preachers, which you know all the men in the congregation are responsible for teaching, which
1: is good. But then again, there's nothing wrong
0: with having a preacher that you pay. Right. Yeah, so I, I would I would classify all of that as division on on doctrine. And I think also Just for time's sake, um, I think we also run into division on preference or opinion, right? Part of being in a large group of people, you know, whether it's a a family or a, you know, whatever, some sort of organization or the church, is you're not always going to get your way, right? Things aren't going to always be done the way you want them to be. And learning to put those preferences behind you, understand that I'm not in charge here, you know, this isn't, this isn't my church, um, th- that takes humility. And again, I'm saying, this, we're getting into like preference and opinion here, we're not getting into doctrine. Um, that, I think, is also a case where we need to be mindful and we need to be humble. Um, finding unity in Christ, right, means that the unity is based on Christ. If, if I don't like those ferns up there, I don't think that's unity in Christ, right? That's not a unity in Christ issue. That's a, a preference issue. Um, that's a me issue. And so learning to not split the church over what I want or what I like, I think, is also part of that spiritual growth of not being fleshly in my thinking, right? Of, of prioritizing the spiritual things.
1: Mm. And if they didn't go along with it, no one crossed them, no one did. It's right. okay
0: to do And nobody else right. them. Right. Personal ties that can also cause schisms in a church as well, or personal ties to a particular preacher. You, you've heard of, of congregations that split because some controversy with a preacher. The preacher leaves, half the church goes with him, and half stays. All right, well, we've run out of time But the last question I want to leave you with, and this is kind of the homework for you, right, to kind of take with you. Think about these these issues we've mentioned here this morning, these issues of division in the church. Uh, And the question now is, what can I do about it? You know, what what can I do um, as a member of the Lord's body? Because unity is a job for all of us, right? We all have to work at it because we're all part of this together. And so how do I promote unity? How do I help mend fences or build bridges or whatever analogy you want to use in a way that is still, you know, prioritizing unity of command in Christ, still following Christ's teachings, but but help, you know, maintain unity within, um, you know, what I can do or, or what I can, what, where I'm at, I guess, in the church. What can I do to help contribute to that? All right, thank you for your attention this morning.